G'day guys, welcome to the Detour Podcast. It's the last edition for 2020 and it's going to be sad to say goodbye to such an epic year. But uh, I'm joined as always by four-time national road champion Johnny Trevorrow. What's happened here? I can't hear you. Uh, you can't hear me? Our first challenge. Well, that's not a good start. I think it's uh, the Wi-Fi God's way of really spying off on the <laughs> Can you hear me? No? I can now. You've just come back. I've, I lost you for a minute there, mate. Uh, I was going to say, are we really going to finish the show where you can't hear me and you'll just kick you off and go solo? But we've got two amazing guests, so I could have made it work. Uh, what can you say about our next two guests to finish off 2020. <laughs> well, two two of the greatest legends of Australian cycling, one on the bike and one on and off the bike. We've got uh, Cadell Evans, uh, you know, who was our number one uh, greatest uh, cyclist, Tour de France winner, world champion, and everyone knows that all, all about that record. And then we've got Scotty Sunderland, who had a fantastic racing career, one of the longest uh, uh, pro careers of, of, of any of our uh, bikies over all those years. Uh, and, and with a lot of challenges, a lot of terrible injuries, uh, but also has now become one of the main men in cycling. He's the uh, race director of the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, well, two boys on together, but he's also the race director of the Flanders Classics, so all the great Flanders Classics, including the big one, the Ronda Tour of Flanders. So it'd be great to talk to him about all of those things. So looking forward to chatting to the two boys. Well, they join us both live from Europe. Uh, welcome, fellas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'll start with you, Cadell. How was your Christmas period, mate? Um, oh, very good. Thanks. Um, oh, Merry Christmas to everyone there as well. Um, Happy New Year. What's well, going to be coming soon? Um, but Christmas for me was quiet. Of course, just close family um, <clears throat> here in Europe. We're coming back to... Um, right back in the middle of, middle of another COVID old pandemic thing. So it's just I've got my family in sort of a voluntary um, voluntary lockdown at the moment. We're just enjoying being at home and uh, enjoying each other's company. <clears throat> we have two boys under the age of two, so right. <clears throat> boredom at home does not happen. <clears throat> and, Scotty, you, you were saying off air that the, there's a four-person bubble limit in Belgium. This must cause some fights among family as to who gets the golden ticket. Yeah, it is a bit like that. I mean, um, well, all my family's back in Australia, so that sort of makes that one pretty easy for us. And and uh, with my wife, uh, sort of stuck to the bu um, bubble, you know. She's got two sisters and a mother, and um, we just sort of said, no, we just need to, to stick to our, our bubble, and that's what we've done. And uh, one of our sons is back in Australia, fortunately for him, with his girlfriend. They're living up in Brisbane, trying to kick off his uh, videography and uh, film directing career. But uh, So we just got one teenage son under the roof with us, and... If he's not on the PlayStation, then we're um, just sitting around and enjoying good food and wine and good Belgian beers. Uh, if he, how did you go this the Christmas off season? Were you one of those disciplined riders that you know would watch what you ate on Christmas Day? Yeah, I used to watch a lot of what I ate because I ate a lot and uh, drank a lot as well. So uh, no, I was never as serious as these two blokes, that's for sure. But uh, but I had a great Christmas this year where I think we had uh, 25 grand for lunch with 12 grandkids and kids and all of that. So uh, a great day. No, no, we didn't have to worry about any bubbles here. What, what about you, Cadell? When you were in your cycling career, were you really disciplined on Christmas Day or was it the one day where you said, that's all right, I can have extra pav and just let your hair down? 
No, um, that was one day, or normally I was doing so much training, depending where, where you were starting your season, you, you might have just been a few weeks out from the Nationals and Tour Down Under and those early season races, or um, <clears throat> or you might have been just packing your bags just about to head to Europe to go to a training camp or something, but uh, no, Christmas Day for me was always about, uh, it was one day a year I could see all my family in Australia, because even even though even if I was in Australia, we family as we are as we are in Australia, we're always quite dispersed. So that was the one one day I could really see my whole family. I uh, enjoyed. <clears throat> I came I came to Christmas Day with a big appetite, and I left I left rolling uh, left the family uh, lunch or dinner or both um, rolling home, <clears throat> very happy with knowing that I was going to burn it all off before the next next season. But no, family uh, Christmas was really about yeah, eating, drinking, and being with family and en- enjoying it. <clears throat> Scotty, we've we've had a few riders on this program talking about their different approaches to off seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Wean Dog's a classic. He doesn't touch the pedals for four weeks. He has as many beers as he wants. When he starts training again, he goes really hard. How did you approach the off season as a rider? I, I sort of done my off season a little bit through the season as well because when I ever took a break, uh, I didn't not. Uh, enjoy luxuries of having some good wine and beer and, and uh, you know, the chocolates and stuff. So, so I was always able to to manage that. So, um, yeah, I sort of just watched, kept a bit of an eye every now and again. I just sort of do a reality check on the Fridays, uh, check the weight to make sure I wasn't blowing out too much. But I uh, try and have those few weeks off the bike completely, uh, just, you know, get the head right and do some other stuff that you always want to do, you sort of look forward to during the year, you know, whether it's going – surfing or motorbike riding or whatever you have, end up doing, whatever uh, rings your bell. And then, um, yeah, but just enjoy some beers and some party time now. Um, let the hair down a bit, as they say, and and uh, just try and get the head fresh again before you kick off for the new Did year. <laughs> yeah, now you guys normally you'd be over here now uh, having a little bit of Christmas cheer and getting ready uh, for the Canal Evans uh, Great Ocean Road Race in just about six weeks' time. Of course, uh, with with the pandemic and everything, it, it, it's uh, not going to happen in 2021. So I'd just like to get both your thoughts on, on, on how tough that must be for you. Um, oh, <clears throat> Either or, Scott, shall I start? Um, of course, sure. one thing. Missing, John, missing. John, you're meant to say Cadell or you're meant to say Scott. You know, no, no, just leave <laughs> okay. it open. Just, just a future reference. Oh, I said, Take it away, Cadell. Oh, I, said, I said Scott, but I spoke over the top of him. Um, <laughs> no, I just said, first of all, I'm, I'm really missing coming to Australia. Um, and so is, so, is, so is my Stefania. And um, <clears throat> and then going on to the race, of course, we... Um, I'll let Scott speak more about this, and of course, we'll, of course, we're disappointed not to have the race. But at the same time, I'm also a little bit um, looking at uh, how hard the sacrifices Melbournians have made and Australia's made, and the great progress that Melbourne and Australia has made against the whole pandemic and where you are now. <clears throat> I'm also of the feeling um, now's just now's just not quite the time to um, to be taking risks with um, bringing in a lot of overseas visitors and so on. So I'm a little bit. Um, I'm very disappointed, of course, not to have the race and the ride, but um, but at the same time, we've got to look at the health and the economy, and I think getting the getting the unemployment uh, line down in Australia, and um, getting getting the education kids' edu- children's education programs uh, back to back to normal as soon as possible are probably the biggest priorities in the country right now. Um, Scotty, has the biggest problem been just the unknown with the pandemic, like the ebbs and flows, and and the inability to sort of predict? What's going to happen? Um, yeah, look, 
I mean, when all this decision making uh, came about, mate, uh, we, we did a lot of this in conjunction with South Australia, uh, with Tour Down Under. Uh, we looked at it. Um, I had a lot of talks and meetings with uh, team managers and general managers with UCI, etc. Also, the the information that I had from how to manage pandemic uh, situations and running events with Flanders Classics. Um, you know, I'm also doing work with Ride London now. Um, they had to cancel their races this year. They're looking at only only having a women's race next year. So there's a lot of different elements. Plus, there's a lot of people in in the decision making uh, on a governmental level, and then particularly like as Cadell just mentioned, you know, for Australia to go on lockdown and not allow international uh, athletes coming into Australia. This is all is warranted, uh, and I think for for Australia and then the border controls and uh, uh, managing the the COVID. Uh, in Australia for everybody, it's a wise decision. Um, but I tell you, phew, it was a long decision. I mean, we started already, this moment that it kicked off in March, we're already on all the different case scenarios. Uh, Visa Victoria's uh, event team was uh, led by Damien DeBowen. Uh, we're trying to look at all case scenarios. So got in a, um, a risk assessor, uh, Hotomoto, uh, to assess all the situations for us. Uh, once again, talking to all the stakeholders and stuff. So it's a big decision uh, to be made, and um, it all came to a head uh, when it did, uh, in conjunction with South Australia, and um, you know mainly with the athletes um, and the team saying, "Look, we find it also too risky to come out." Uh, in the end of it, they they didn't want to do the quarantine that was required two weeks, uh, with the potential having to re- quarantine on the way back. Uh, so that would you know lead anywhere up to three to four weeks for them in quarantine just alone. So that's not a great way to start the season. Although they love being in Australia and they want to be in Australia. Um, so yeah, it just came down to it, mate. The, the COVID on so many different levels and uh, elements to it that um, uh, led to the decision being made that the events wouldn't run. We, you see what's happening with uh, Tour Down Under, and they've transformed it into a festival cycling. There's a lot more sort of NRS stuff. Was there ever a plan to sort of do something similar for the Cadell race, Scotty? We had a look at it. Um, and a thing that we sort of have in Victoria and Melbourne uh, is Victoria has a lot of big events. Um, you see it with the tennis, Formula One, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, then to then do something NRS, we did have a look at it, the viability of it. We're having uh, two one-day races, uh, so you can look at it two ways. It is easier to do, to run those two one-day races, but is it worthwhile to do it in, in the cost-effective way as well, and is it what the uh, what the athletes want? Uh, at that point, when we made the decision not to go ahead with the race, uh, we sort of hadn't looked further down the road of doing an NRS event, um, and the decision was made uh, from, from government level that they, they wouldn't be going ahead to do that. Uh, the Herald Sun Tour had already said that they would not be running in 2020. So the summer of cycling there was getting a little bit diluted on, on being able to create something for January uh, into February. So unfortunately, uh, it just didn't quite happen for us. And at, at also at that point, South Australia, when they made the decision to go into doing an NRS-type event, Festival of Cycling, they were in a better position. Whereas uh, Melbourne and Victoria were in a lot tougher lockdown uh, position there. Uh, so it just wasn't a positive time to say, no, nah, look, we're not doing the Cadell Evans Gross and Road Race with the professionals coming out, but we're going to do NRS one. It's just the time, it's just a question of time. Like I said, mate, there's a lot of elements in, in the decision making and a lot of people involved uh, and landed where we landed, unfortunately. 
If he, if Scotty, <laughs> Scotty, you missed the big one. They also had to cancel the Bay Crits. Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the Formula One's still going ahead, so at least we'll have one. <laughs> what one yeah. event in Melbourne? No, I won't. Amazingly, in, in in all this process, and anyone who's involved in well, nearly anything in COVID is anything that requires a decision in advance, and even if it's just booking your family holiday or something, never alone booking a booking flights for hundreds of cyclists to come out from Europe, <clears throat> um, you're making a, a decision three, four, five months out. Um, five months from now, who knows what's going to happen? We don't even know what's happening here in Europe next week or, or the week after. So um, so it's that it, it comes down to that where, where you, you make a decision at, at the time, what, you, what you're sure is going to happen. Which is which, which isn't much, and and then in three months' time, five months' time, whatever direction this whole thing takes, we it, it takes, and, and 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 then five months later, you find out whether you made the right decision or not. Um, just on the decision making process, um, just for the viewers, how does that work? Is it like uh, do you have a board and you're going on a Zoom chat? How does how do you make who makes that call? Um, so like I said. You, you know, from March already, we're analysing all the details of, uh, of running the event, what it would take under pandemic uh, situations and standards. Uh, we had a lot of information coming to us from uh, uh, Flanders Classics, for example, running the events that we uh, we did here under the pandemic, which more or less become uh, no public, as you see in the Tour of Flanders and Gent-Wevelgem and all the other races. Uh, there was practically no public on the roads. So unless it passed in front of your doorway, you, didn't, uh, you weren't uh, allowed to come and watch, spectate. Tour de France and the Tour of Italy, uh, Tour of Spain run successful events. Um, that was with a little bit more public uh, in one way, but there was a lot of learnings that uh, we could take away also from them. But at the end of the day, Europe had a lot of COVID already. So the decision-making to not do it in Australia uh, was complete different um, uh, look at it, perspective than, than what it was to Europe. Uh, but to answer your question, Dan, uh, it's mainly governmental and uh, and health, Victorian health, uh, and of course the prime um, prime minister, the minister there, uh, Daniel Andrews. I mean, his his cabinet have to make a decision on what's allowed and then Australian customs, border control. Um, so there's a lot of people involved in the decision making and uh, and understanding of uh, how we can run this event uh, safely, and then all of, also the local stakeholders, you know, through through the area of, of Geelong and. Um, and Torquay, you know, everybody's got to be involved in that decision making. So, in the end of it, capturing all that information, getting all everybody's feedback and their opinions on it, and then coming down to a Zoom call. Yes, that's how. One thing we've learned uh, through this pandemic is Dan's decisions are final. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got the hold of the button, have you? Look, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, not that got, Dan. we're talking about the real Dan, Dan the man, oh, uh, Dan yeah, Andrews. Right. Not me, mate. I've got no pull <laughs> for anything. Um, just, while you're touching on that, Scotty, uh, I mean, I never thought that they'd be able to get through you know three grand tours and most of the classics in just three and a half months, and, and they did it, and it's, it's staggering. Yeah. But they lit on their feet. I mean, I, I didn't think a tour to France was done as well you know there were still lots of problems with people with with the, with the spectators and then they, they improved as they went and the Vuelta was the best of them as far as that's mm -hmm. concerned but i thought the best events actually were your events the, the flanders classics you really you and your team really 
got it worked out. Um, you made sure that the people just weren't uh, uh, invited along on the roads, uh, and you ran it as a TV special. And they were the Tour of Flanders was a brilliant event. So I thought you know you would have learned a lot from that, uh, and I'm interested to know how that's going to go into the start of this year because uh, with what's going on in, in Europe, it looks like it won't be a normal start to the season um, like we had in, the, in previous years. You, you are right. There's a couple of questions there or points. Um, one of them is, yeah, it was to um, become a broadcast product um, and it's what's happening with the cyclocross now. Uh, so where we had all the, all the VIPs and all the crowds and all the climbs in, in Tour of Flanders and Wevergem and all of our other events, uh, Flanders Classics, um, we just asked people to stay at home. You know, we had one of the best uh, broadcasts. We had extra cameras in there. We had extra flyover cameras. You, you would have seen all the images. Um, yeah. It was fantastic. But we put extra uh, resource into that uh, and, of course, budget from the uh, production houses who did it all um, to make it the best uh, television uh, product we could um, so people could stay home and, and enjoy it. Uh, then when we, we, we looked at, you know, it's a bit the same with what's happening with the uh, cyclocross. We talked about it just earlier. Normally there's always all these beer tents and VIPs and, and you know, it's, it's a whole ground. It's like a concert ground uh, where the course is on it and everybody pays to come in to watch the race. It's just a TV product. Uh, but people are, are watching at home. Thank God that the, it's on television we can watch at home because that's about the only thing I've got to look, look forward to every day during the lockdown is to watch the cyclocross. These blokes run around in the mud. And then... We did get a lot of uh, takeaways um, on, on how we could do this in Australia from all of that, uh, John. But the thing is, it's also public perception. While we had COVID was on a, a different level uh, here in, in Europe and, and we were battling all the uh, ways to be able to manage it, you know, from country to country and Europe as, as a whole, uh, Australia was in a complete different position. And what Daniel Andrews was, was striving for was to, to eliminate the COVID or at least get it to the point where it's you know, a 1% within the state or under. Uh, that was their goal. That was the narrative. And um, everybody had to pull a line. And look at it now. You guys are able to enjoy the summer and, and Christmas and New Year together, still with COVID in mind, of course, uh, but you were able to do that. Um, we're just in a different situation, different landscape. You know, um, I still feel that we're doing a lot better than what they are in America, in the US, uh, but we're on a different uh, level compared to Australia. And, and that's you know, as much as we feel isolated in Australia with being on an island, uh, that's been a godsend for, for managing COVID uh, during these times. So it's been a tough one, John. It's, it's, you have to look at each element of it on its own um, and, and manage it in that way. But uh, I'll tell you, it, what we have done this year with Visa Victoria, uh, Damien DeBowen and his team, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, how, how uh, Brendan McClements, who, who's the CEO of, of Visa Victoria, have managed all of this, there's some great learnings and takeaways. So from always when you have challenges in this way, what you learn and that to go forward, uh, that will now become incremental in our, 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 our uh, uh, road book on how we're going to manage uh, the Cadillac Scratching Road Race in the future. We've got a few fan comments coming in. Keep them coming on uh, YouTube and Facebook. Uh, Portia Griffiths, she says, I'm loving holidays, waiting for Bureau Clock. Great stuff, Porter. Uh, Bradley Higgins says, G'day, for, 
Wendy May Abbott, so that's Wendy Superfan and himself at Bendigo Christmas Track Carnival. Uh, Karen Jones gets a good plug in there. Sad not to have Cadell's race for 2021. We'll make sure that the Melbourne to Warney showcases the beautiful Great Ocean Road race until it returns in 2022. Carolyn also says, big decision, right decision, health and safety of the riders first. And we've got a question for you, Cadell, from Doug Robinson. He says, what are your thoughts on virtual racing? Any chance of a virtual Cadell Evans race? I would definitely watch. Virtual um, <laughs> racing. Um, Wi-Fi doesn't arrive into my gym, so I'm not involved in it. That's my own personal experience with virtual racing. I don't. I don't do much of it. Um, it's more. It's something of the many things discussed. Uh, Scott or Scott will probably back me up here, but it's it's something, of course, that we we discussed. Um, personally, I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit. It's the Great Ocean Road race. We want to be out there on the Great Ocean Road, or let's just wait till next year. That's my that's my own opinion. But Scott, going to the uh, virtual racing, um, oh, maybe you would you you'd be able to give a better answer to me than this. Yeah, look, we looked into that. I mean, uh, same again. Flanders Classics, we had experience with it when Tour of Flanders got called off um, pretty much two weeks prior to the event. Um, we quickly uh, scrambled. Uh, the CEO of Flanders Classics was able to get a, a couple of deals done. We had a virtual race with with all the big hitters from Belgium um, being part of it, mainly because of the lockdown and it was so new uh, back on the first weekend of April. Um, and, yes, yeah, so from that we, we looked at it, uh, did a wide uh, um, uh, scope of uh, who, who were the players in virtual racing and so forth. So, once again, uh, within the team at Visa Victoria Events, um, looked at all, ascertained, you know, what could happen, what would... Uh, you know, what, what the needs are, what the requirements are of doing it. At the end of it, we didn't go ahead with it, and it's a little bit like what what uh, Cadell has said. It's a great ocean road race, and we weren't able to quite capture what we wanted to have here. So we just felt the product was, while it was okay, was not great. And that's sort of what the terminology we turned to use. It's a great ocean road race. We want great. We don't want to do, do okay. Uh, so we pulled the pin on it. Um, but it doesn't mean that you know virtual racing, and particularly E-Series, uh, which we've seen that's been launched with the UCI now, um, to be honest, Flanders Classics is doing it at the moment where you can race the Puttersburg, uh, one of the famous climbs of the uh, Tour of Flanders. So it is existing, and there is uh, event organisers who are, who are looking at doing this sort of thing in the future, and I think uh, ASO Tour de France and RCS uh, Tour of Italy We'll be looking at doing other things like this uh, in the future, just as a bit of a strategic backup and plan B in case um, COVID or anything else that comes along in the future does uh, torpedo your event. Iffy? Yeah. Yeah. More, look, by the sounds of it, you're talking about uh, events that are going to be more running in conjunction with the actual event to help promote it and to help, to help give it a higher profile, more than to try and replace it, because I agree. We mm. don't want the average. It's the great ocean road race, not the average ocean road race. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard call, John. I mean, you you are there to do uh, run a race like this, and you know, it's very much also for our sportive ride that we have. You know, a Swiss people's ride that we have on a Saturday before the women's race. It's about getting people out there, the community. We have our family fun ride. You know, uh, where Vegemite gets behind it and supports us. Um, you know. It's, it's about involvement, community involvement. You know, we've got great stakeholders in, in, in the uh, Greater Geelong Shire, the, the Surf Coast Shire from Torquay and uh, this area, uh, Bellarine Peninsula, um, you know, and then Melbourne and Visit Victoria. I mean, there's so many people involved in this and in, in creating that community. We have a lot of Melbournians who come out to do the event. 
and we got a lot of interstate people coming down and we just felt doing something like this it's it's as you say john it can complement or it's a, it's a side dish but it's not the main dish and the main dish is the great that we want you know and it's creating greatness and uh cadell's been able to do that through his career and we've been able to now do this in in, in the bike race and you know with the greatest and road at our doorstep um that's you know this seems to fit that's part of the fabric of it um cadell is one of the benefits of the pandemic been such a huge uptake in people you know wanting to cycle i mean you can't get a bloody bike in australia unless you go to <laughs> bikeexchange.com uh, but are you are you finding that in europe like a lot more people are cycling now yeah oh of course my other well i'm not 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 uh, working working for my for the great ocean road race i'm involved in the bike industry through bmc and it's been um one of the if, if if there is something positive to take out of this situation i'd like to think there's more than just people taking up cycling but i think um well sales sales of bicycles is worldwide has just been fantastic and i think that's for a lot of reasons <clears throat> one one of the <clears throat> things I, I hope we take out of this um disaster is that we just have a better perspective on life and what's important in life and whether that's health and well-being um <clears throat> so looking after ourselves uh and each other <clears throat> but also uh, there's also this whole whole aspect where people are scared to take the train, particularly in Europe where a lot of people use public transport. At least you can, with an e-bike, you can take, um, you know, you're pretty safe riding an e-bike in terms of COVID and so on, where when you get on a bus or something, I still see a lot of the buses here quite full. But um, but for, for so many different reasons, um, people people have taken up cycling. I hope they continue. And that's, um, yeah, like you said, one of the one of the good things that have come out of all of this disaster. Hey, John, we were at a function a couple of weeks ago and uh, the chief executive of the Amy Gillett Foundation spoke, Dan Nip, about what they're doing, now if you're talking about rider safety, and it was fascinating to hear his take on what they're going to be doing moving forward, one of the initiatives with truck drivers, Ify. Yes, well, that was great. It was about uh, they're educating truck drivers. They're actually getting them, putting them on bikes and getting them to ride along in the traffic. And and, and, and they suddenly get a different awareness of what it's like. So they picked out just a, some random truckies, some rough old tough truckies in their, in their you know, blue Aussie uh, uh, singlets uh, and put them there and they went from hating cyclists to understanding it a lot more and, and they've used that, that that data but the other thing there was a couple of blokes who spoke at that uh, at that breakfast and uh we actually went for a ride beforehand breakfast oh you didn't do do it dan that's right you you sat back and had coffees but i you're networking right but yeah. um it was really interesting to hear them talking about how they're developing more cycle paths or even putting temporary ones in for the moment, taking uh, traffic mm. lanes out to get because more and more people are wanting to ride to work now. They don't want to get on a train, they don't want to take the car, they want to ride to work. So it's really taking off. So it was interesting to hear all the different uh, aspects of how, how what they're doing to try and make that happen. It is happening here a lot in the cities too, uh, as well, um, Dan. The whole thing about electric bikes and, and, and having fold-up bikes and, and, and a lot of money has been invested into uh, cycleways and bike paths because of this. And as Cadell said, you know, the, the figures are through the roof with bike sales. So if there's more bikes, you need to have more roads and pathways. Um, but also here in Europe, a lot of cities are coming down to where they, you either have to have a hybrid car or full electric car to come into the cities in, in the future. So and I'm talking about in the next five years. So if this is happening... Uh, that means there's going to be more bike paths created or all the existing roads will be more bike friendly. 
what they're doing here in Ghent, they actually uh, priority uh, roads for cyclists are painted red. And so the cars actually have to give way in total. So if you've got a rider riding 20 kilometers in an hour in front of them, you are not allowed to overtake them through Ghent. Uh, mm. It's a big university town. So most of the people are riding bike or have a bike and even in bad weather. So there is a, a mindset change and the, and the COVID pandemic has brought on, accelerated uh, this uh, for a lot of big cities and, and uh, areas uh, around Europe. More feedbacks coming in, guys. Uh, we've got one from Nick Fiona Lee. Hey, good decision to uh, on the call to cancel the race. Thank you so much for the best organised ride in Australia. Absolutely love your yeah. event. We'll definitely ride this event when you hold this event next time. I saw you firsthand how Cadell gets involved with the children in the Vegemite ride. Awesome work. And, John, turn your phone off. How many times did I tell you, mate? Um, now, before we – we want to go back to the origins of the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. Uh, before we do, Johnny, um, we better give a quick plug to some of the sponsors. Michelin Wines, you're in the Gambia at the moment. You don't have your script, yeah. but you've done this a million times, so you should not well, offer I, I, I did forget my script, but uh, I can buzz through this. Well, I drove past it uh, this morning, and I'm going there for a meal tomorrow night. But um, it's just a wonderful place. You settle into the beautiful Goulburn Valley. Uh, there's a couple walking out of the absolutely brilliant cellar door there. Um, of course, you can uh, – uh, that's the new hotel, which is just magnificent. It's also got a fantastic uh, spa and wellness centre where you can just – uh, sit back and relax the mind and the body. Of course, you go into the uh, uh, Muse restaurant for the sensational meals, and there's a lovely bottle of uh, Mitchell. It looks like a Marsala, is it? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, um, and also, it's become the place to go for, for weddings and major functions. There's a happy couple there. You have to be invited or you can just go to weddings? There. Uh, you just roll up. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, that's sensational. And, there, and, of course, you must go and visit the uh, Aboriginal Art Gallery, which is the, uh, the biggest uh, privately owned uh, um, Aboriginal Art Gallery in Australia, and it is magnificent. And there it is, $10,000 uh, land cruiser with the $2.8 million paint job. Right. 2.8 last episode, that was going to go up to three. But anyway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next year. Right. Yeah. Here's a quick word for our mates at Bike Exchange, then we're going to ask about the origins of the Great Ocean Road Race. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike. Or just a piece of it. Amateurs. Semi-amateurs. And pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank. And these bars. This could be the perfect match. But not this one. This girl has a bike to sell. And thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours. And the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace with over 500,000 products and 900 brands where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns and rides. Now, when we go back to the origins of the Great Ocean Road Race, before we start, you guys were on the opposite sides of the fence at that classic Tour de France battle in 2008. 
Uh, obviously, Scotty, you were with uh, CSC with Carlos Sastry and Cadell. Um, I mean, sorry to dig up some old memories, but um, what, Scotty, what was your takeaways from that race? Because Carlos was not uh, a backed favourite by any stretch that year. It's, it's funny because, um, you know, I it's spent all the time racing with Cadell and uh, we, we uh, roomed um, a few times on separate different times, you know, with training camps or, or the Tour Down Under when we rode with, uh, with the national yeah, team national. there. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we knew each other really well, but I suppose that was also a little bit of a, uh, an added bonus for me with, with uh, Carlos. But, yeah, there was a bit of a, a difficult situation in CEC that year, um, mainly because we sort of had the Italian-Spanish uh, connection, the Latino connection, um, and then we had within the team, and then we had the Frank and Andy Schleck uh, with, with uh, more of the Germanic uh, connection. And so coming into it, there was a bit of conflict from that started at the beginning of the year uh, at one of the races. And, Cadell, you probably, I'm not even sure if you're aware of it, but we more or less came into the Dauphiné Libre and Carlos was ready to pull the pin and not do the Tour de France there. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a big story behind it, and I'm not going to drag too many skeletons out of the closet here. But Oh, please do. Um, but <laughs> we want to hear them. Rattle them, mate. Rattle them. <laughs> so coming into the Dauphiné Libre, um, I was supposed to go and do uh, – well, I was. The plan was I was doing all the reconnaissance of some of the climbs in around the, around the Alps then at that time uh, for the final stages, including the Alpe d'Huez. And um, Cadell uh, was, was doing well. He, all of his preparation was going well. And, and, you know, everybody was tracking how well he was doing. So ultimately, he was going to be a, a favourite, one of the top favourites. Uh, and everybody was sort of, you know, coming down to be a, this big fight between Schlex and Cadell. But in the meantime, with Carlos there, who wanted to do the well, well, and he, he felt that this was his year. He just felt it in his bones. Um, but then there was some conflict that was coming uh, externally. Um, within the team, but not actually from the riders. And um, even in the time trial, like, I mean, Carlos finished, I think, don't quote me, he was only 42nd or 46th place in an uphill time trial. And, uh, you know, I went to see him that evening. And I said, mate, you know, disgusted, and we, we talked about it. And uh, you could see that he was okay, but he just was not hard, wasn't in it, and uh, physically he's okay. So it came down, uh, we had to do the training camp and um, uh, I called to, to Biana and I said, Biana, you need to come and do this training camp. Oh, no, I don't have time, I don't do it. I said, well, if you want Carlos at the start of the tour, you will have to come and do this training camp because uh, you need to sort this out. And that's what it came down to. So I, I went home and uh, did the first day and went home and um, by the time they came out of the training camp, uh, they were able to resolve issues. And then we got to the start in Brittany and um, talk with uh, Carlos there, so we were talking daily, and uh, so it sort of ended up I was in his camp, and then unwillingly, but that's sort of how it went, and just sort of our decision as, as team management to do that, and then uh, Kim Anderson was more with the with the Schlex camp. Um, hence, by the time the tour was finished, Carlos was left the team, even even straight after winning. So, so it's yeah. your fault, uh, Scotty. You, we can blame you. <laughs> No, it wasn't. Well, <laughs> no, it's sort of trying to get the achieve. The goal was for our sponsors was to win the tour, and that's all it was was about winning it. And Bianca knew that. He knew that if we're going to win, we had three candidates who going in it. If the thing if we came on a start, we would have said any one of these three guys from CSC, Frank, Andy, and Carlos, 
has a chance to be on the podium. We weren't that bold to say we're going to win it, but we said they could be on the podium as individuals. But if we rode well as a team with the strength we have from those three guys, plus Stuart Grady, Fabian Cancellara, Jens Voigt, Nicky Sorensen, Vladimir Gustav in support, crikeys. Yeah, what, what a team that was. Uh, so that's what Cadell had to contend with with his team at, at Lotto. Uh, and he had his crash, uh, you know, which I noted all of this sort of stuff, Cadell. I'm sorry about that, but that made you look a bit more vulnerable. Your body needs time to recover from crashes. It's the mental impact it has on it. And, and if I was Cadell, coming up to against a team like this, that's, that's a big, big call. Like he had a strong team, and this is going back, there, but he didn't have a great team. We had a great team as a team, not as in, an individual. Whereas Cadell was great, his team wasn't. Um, that was the point of difference. And Carlos Suster is, a, is an awesome person. I must say, he's a fantastic bike rider. Uh, I think if he had his time again a bit later, he probably could have achieved a bit more. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this guy finished 10 times in the top 10 of Grand Tours. He, he finished third in the Tour of Spain that same year while Bjarne Ries was more or less trying to sabotage his Tour of Spain. Um, mm. I remember in, uh, there's so many stories there, guys, but it's not the time and place for it. It's probably over another chat but yeah it was it was quite a quite amazing tour so um unfortunately Cadell, sorry that you didn't win that tour but yeah we got what we needed well, out of it well, well i reckon that if COVID hit in 2008 uh Cadell, you would have won that race by about 10 minutes it seemed, <laughs> it seemed like there was a lot of external or exterior mess around your tour de france campaign that year you know they're doing the docos they're sort of pretty much saying you know we've got the favorite and you know we're going to win this. I mean, as a rider and as a GC rider, you, you don't need that sort of expectation and pressure, really. Well, I certainly didn't want it. I think you observed that well, Dan. Um, oh, I was interesting to hear. I didn't know that about Carlos. And I don't, Carlos was a very reserved individual. Mm. I really don't know him well enough to be able to make a, a judgment, a, a fair judgment about him. I have a feeling he's a really, like you said, a really great person and I totally trust that from what little I know about him. But also I really like him. In fact, he's quiet and reserved and and he really, on the, that day on afterwards, he was incredible. But like you said, Scott, my tour was, well, yeah, the build-up for me, first going chronologically, Dan, from the, I think the day they announced, um, I think uh, that um, Contador wouldn't be or Astana wouldn't be in the tour, Mm -hmm. The perspective of the world towards me and what was going to happen at that tour completely changed. For me as a rider, I'm just like, hang on a second, the race hasn't even started yet. You've got to get you've got to get on the start line, you've got to be good, and you've got to go and win it. And not this talking about it. Whereas I had teams and sponsors who were getting so much publicity out of just being the favorite that they sort of wanted to mm. make the most of that before the race even started, in case the race didn't go that they wanted to. And then they started making this documentary, which was completely against my they sort of did it. They didn't even ask me if I wanted to do it because they knew I'd say no because I just want to go to the training camp and do the work that needs to be done without um, sort of diluting. And then afterwards, you if you win the tour, you can you can do all those things. But first, mm. you've got to win the tour, and that was always my my focus. And so I, I didn't I, I all of that that went on was just a distraction and a waste of energy for me. Um, and I I never was. Um, one thing that really changed for me going to BMC, Lotto, I had great opportunities and things, but to be a to have, for them to have a favourite of for the Tour de France was just so far beyond what anything they'd experienced before. That they couldn't, they didn't know how to how to utilise it or manage it, and a lot of it fell on my shoulders. And 
And that um, that doesn't work well when you're trying to get out the door to go training, but journalists are either ringing your doorbell or waiting for you outside or, mm. so, you know, I ride my bike. That's one thing you, you can't outsource. And um, and so that was leading into the tour. Then going to the tour, to what you said, Scott, I had this crash and that, well, my my coach, Aldo Sassi, who's not with us anymore, he said, well, um, looked at the numbers and he said, oh, I think you took away 5%. Of my performance, so for me to go to the tour and come second by fifty seconds at five percent off, well, yeah. like he said, you wrote a fantastic tour. Yeah, but in my mind, I look back at it and I'm not actually that sorry about it in some ways because I'm like, I think I had the legs to come sixth, seventh, eighth, or something, and I came second. Mm. The thing that was when you're there running second, but you've only got the legs to be seventh, but maybe you can win it. And then I found myself in the particularly the Alpe d'Huez stage, which there was there was the race itself and closing to Carlos with the Slack brothers on the wheel, me not being at the level I was. It was the same situation in 2011 on the Galibier, but I also had uh, in the group there on Alpe d'Huez, I had like five Spanish guys. So I think we were 12 or 13 behind. Five or six of them were Spanish. They weren't going to mm-hmm. chase. Two right. were teammates of Carlos Slack. They weren't going to chase it left. Christian Vanderveld and uh, Dennis Minchov and myself mm-hmm. to chase. I think Christian might have done a turn or two, but <laughs> that was it. And it was so it was a, it was a really sort of strange situation. And and um, also to, for me, it was like, well, I can go and try and encourage some of these guys to help me chase. But if I go back on Alpe d'Huez and talk to someone, I'm going to lose another thirty seconds to Carlos, which is thirty seconds I have to take back on the climb, mm. which um, I'm probably going to be attacked by the Schleck brothers uh, in the final or another 30 seconds more that I'm going to have to take back in the time trial. And, of course, at that point I'm like, well, I'll try and minimise it here and then take the rest back in the time trial. But um, unfortunately, and, and for me, it was just having that crash was um, was what personally made the big difference. And that happened. Uh, nothing I can I can do about it now, and that's just mm. the way it went. And that actually that day on Alpe d'Huez, for me personally, was the physically most hardest day I ever had on my bike in my life. You, you know, Kadil, um, this is something else. We actually never had time to talk about this stuff, so it's the first time it's happening, so it's a bit of a... Oh, it all happens on detour, yeah. That's it. <laughs> hearing, hearing, hearing from the Schleck brothers about their 2011 tour as well. Anyway, that's right. Yeah. So on the stage, um, stage uh, before Alpe d'Huez, you know how we set it up in the morning? We, we sent uh, Jens Voigt and Kurt Asler-Arvison away in the break right from the word go. Uh, and when we finished the last climb, it was over Col Bonnet. Uh, I can't remember the town we finished. So you did Col Bonnet and then you dropped straight down. It was the day before Alp Duez. I can't remember the small town it finished in. Anyway, so we sent them up the road with the whole tactic that Carlos was going to hit out on the last climb and go across to Jens and Kurt and then try and uh, put pressure on the on the Cadell. Whereas Frank and Andy would stay, and the Cadell would have to you know pull uh, irons out of the fire. But we got onto the climb, and Jens was up the road, and he was waiting there for him, and uh, he didn't jump. And Bjarne Reese saying said to him, "You need to go now, Carlos. You need to go. You can see Cadell is there, but you know you need to to attack." And he didn't. Why? It's because Frank was suffering. He went back before he went to go to attack when he's supposed to. He dropped back and seen Frank was totally a block in your wheel. So actually, if you would attack, you would have dropped Frank on that day. Uh, and, they would have, 
Yeah, well, thanks for telling us now. <laughs> yeah, uh, 12 years later. But there was also one thing, I don't know if it was that day or the day before, and just speaking about the team and the team that you had, that one day it was right at the start and it split in the, it split, there was, or you guys, I don't know if it was you guys or someone else, it split in the crosswind. Mm-hmm. And there yeah. were, it was like 12 or I think it was 16 riders or 12 riders or 10 riders. But there was like six <laughs> CSC. <laughs> me and three others from other teams. I was completely on my own. On like, own yeah. do if I if I puncture, it's all it's all over right there. It was it and was that's all what over. We've seen with the tactics uh, that you know after that stage coming into it, we said if we can isolate Cadell, then we got three in the front. But if we already put two up the front with um, uh, Jens and, and Kurt Arslavsen, like Kurt had already won a stage uh, earlier in the in the tour, and Jens is Jens. Um, but yeah, and why Carlos didn't do it, and this, he is a bloody, honestly, a super nice guy. He said, I'm not going to attack. Even when Bjarne Reese was yelling at him, his team boss, to attack, to put his teammate, and this is where he's on principle and his morality is there, I'm not going to attack and put my own teammate who's wearing a yellow jersey out the back. He said, I'm not doing that. So after the race, we talked about it, and he was upset at Bjarne because he, he you know, had a crack at him about it. And he just said to me, he said, Scott, it's all or nothing on Altuez. He said, I can do it. He said, they just need to get me to the bottom of Altuez. And everything that he wanted, the team done, and then he executed it. Uh, he, he just, he had so much, I don't know if it was frustration, anger, uh, energy pent up that he'd been carrying through from Dauphiné Libre that uh, he just released it all in that day, mate. No one was going to stop him on Altuez. Um, Could I, was that frustrating that you were up against, particularly in that period, sort of, you know, 07s to 2010, you're up against these super teams. You know, they always seem to have guys around you and, and ganging up on you, at the, particularly at the pointy end of the climbs. And, you know, I remember the post-race interviews, how many times you had to say, well, it was three against one or, you know, four against one. You look back now, if, if you had those super teams around you, do you think it would have made a, a big difference? Yeah, of course, I always find myself in these situations where oh, I was on my own, but I'm like, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. I'm here. I'll do what I can. But that's where, um, oh, it's funny, in in, in those moments, because, I, like, I was, for years, I was I was sort of touted in the pre, the European press as the guy that doesn't attack. But also, you know, when there's three of them and one of me, I'm like, well, what am I going to do when I get exactly. caught? <laughs> I can attack and one of them, they're going to sacrifice one to bring him back and then they're going to have two to, I'm like, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait and, and, and that's where, where it went through. But that was also the part of... Um, there a couple a couple of things in my career when um, when I went to Lotto, um, my team hadn't given me chances to race, and I just wanted the opportunity to race in the big races again. And this is going back to two thousand and five. I finally mm. got to start the tour. I wasn't even selected for the in my previous team for that. I wasn't even selected for the Tour de France uh, <clears throat> as a rider. So just just to do the big races and race at the front was one thing. One thing with Lotto was all of a sudden. Oh, we can do. Oh, we can get points here. We can get points there. And all of a sudden, they're getting all these uh, world tour points, or the pro, pro tour was back then, pro tour points at all these races that they never even mm-hmm. had a presence at. But then they get to the tour. Oh, oh, but now you, oh, now you got to um, do something at the tour or get points or finish in the top ten. But then well, first it was the top ten. Then it was the top five. Then it was the podium. Then it was win. But I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay. But when you go, when you've got the yellow jersey at the tour, you can't. You can't just ask the other teams to ride, um, and that's where you need a strong team. And that's where I, I just remember we were having one day, and, and the team I had to start jumping in breakaways because we didn't have a team just to keep like keep control the start of the race and and let a let a 
a break that suited us go away because we didn't even have the team to do that. Um, and there at that point, I'm sort of like, well, <clears throat> I've done my job. I'll, I'll make um, a bold statement here, guys, for you. If Cadell had the support of a team in yours, I reckon he'd have three Tour de France's under his belt. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I'm then not. That's an easy explanation. But also going on in that period, so one other small detail in this, I was also at a point until 2008, I wasn't considered a favourite for a tour. Let's remember, I'm Australian. There was an Australian team. And when you have a Belgian team or a Spanish team or a French team, normally the sponsor is much better to have a rider who can maybe do, say, this happened with me and even in Lotto with um, Vanderbroek. Um, he... Um, they were better to come in the first five and have a go at the KOM jersey with him than they were with an Australian getting on the podium. And yeah. it would have been the same for the Spanish team or a French team. They're better to have a Spanish rider go in the first three or five than put everything onto an Australian rider. And I was sort of like, well, what can I do? Mm. There wasn't a big team or every every big team had someone already that, that they, they banked on, whether it was you know, a Spanish team with Valverde or a... A French team with a French hope, or or maybe I maybe I could have had a chance at a French team, but then also the teams at that time they weren't really strong. And then so the fact with Lotto, I could go I could go to a team they had faith in me, which in two thousand five, no one in professional cycling did. Funny that we speak about two thousand eight because that day after Alpes, neither Lotto didn't have any faith in me either. But uh, anyway, and. Um, and just these opportunities that come, but then it's not about the sporting performance that you've done. It's where then you try and choose the right team and you're making a decision for years down the track, a bit like we're doing about whether we run the race or not. But um, the opportunities just just, just weren't there because a lot of the teams didn't believe in me. In, now, in 2000, when you won, I was working, uh, I'd obviously done a thing with uh, Sky and everything else. And then when I was back in Australia and I hooked up with SBS to do the Tour de France commentary because uh, you got second the following year um, and you made your move to BMC. And I came out and said in June, I said, uh, Cadell now will win his first Tour de France. And I had all these these vloggers and bloggers and everything. Ah, he can't win. He, you know, he's only good at getting second. He's a podium at the best sense. And I said, no way. And I had to give a reason why and i said because he's in the right team he has a team that's there for cadell not to do exactly what you've been describing cadell and and so i said about it you know jim mockowitz and, and that and because i knew jim and i'd already seen how the team structure is coming up uh and i really believed in that and that's because the team did everything and the difference between cadell in 2008 when he was defeated to the year he won come down to one moment and that was the day that you got that um, flat tire or you're having problems with your brake on the climber. Uh, it was before getting to... Yeah, the... Um, with, um, on cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from Monterey up, yeah. Yep. You, your calmness during that, if that was in 2008, you would have been oh, nervous and yelling and stuff, but you got off the bike, you were calm, you looked at your brake, got back on your bike and you took off again. You, and, it's just a complete different aura and uh, around you. you your, your energy was totally different the year you won and that comes down to purely the, the team management and the team uh, supporting you and believing in you compared to, yeah. to previous years. Oh, and that's, that's a, I think that's a really good observation because also um, uh, Dan and, and John would know John, George Luchinger, who was yeah. the press officer at BMC. It doesn't seem like such a big thing to have on your performance, but all of a sudden I had someone just managing that 
part of your job as a cyclist is be available to the press. But like I said in Lotto, I couldn't even leave my house to go training or on a training camp. I couldn't get out of the hotel room or out of the hotel to go and ride my bike. But this is months before I'm dealing with this. I just want to train and be good for the tour and do my best tour. It, mm. it, it sounds so simple, yet um, I couldn't even do that. But this is the stress, stress that you don't need. It's totally unnecessary. And, um, and and it just builds up and up. And then when we get to the tour, sometimes it just amazes me. And it's like with Jim and the team and um, John LeLang, it's like, well, I think we need to do this, this and this. And they look at okay, and then this is what we need to do. That's what George, he was also, um, he's a soccer coach as well, so he has a good understanding of sport um, mm. and just sport, sport psychology and being what's what's important for people and for me i just wanted to be calm so that i could concentrate and do the job and, and enjoy it when everyone around you is nervous and do this and do that and you didn't do that right and it's like calm down hang on a second and then the um and another aspect of this which sort of comes to mind is how many people say in a building team you're the team leader you need to do this this and this and i'm like hang on a second a belgian guy who might ride for gc might do that <laughs> Here's this guy who's born in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory who came through the sport through mountain biking and this, and I'm not this. Scott, you, you know how different the mentality of the riders is in Belgium is compared to Inverell and Armadale and where we're from. But that was general. It's the same for the Italians and the Spanish. The mindset of, of back in the 90s compared to the 2000s is totally different, and, and it changed quite quickly. I mean, five years later, uh, professional cycling and the way teams approached uh, cycling, it, it changed a hell of a lot, guys, a hell of a lot. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the resource uh, and the money coming in from uh, from Team Sky at that time. Uh, and also from Bianca Reese, what he did with Saxo Bank team and then with Contador. Uh, and a few of these teams here started coming with bigger budgets to the point where, like, Cadill had this no-press officer to actually having the, the, the yellow jersey or the, the GC guys having their own press officer, their own minivan, their own support crew who looked after them from the moment they got off the bike until they got back to the hotel. And the rest of the team had theirs to, you know, having kitchens and cooks and, uh, you know, osteopaths and everything else. I mean, Dan, if you've seen all that, you've been travelling with um, Mitchell and Scott and Green Edge for, for all these years, you know what goes behind the scenes that goes on behind it. And every year... Each team is stepping up the performance and support uh, for the riders. Uh, but it was at that point there, you just had to be able to, you had to be a mongrel and mm. fight, fight for your position off the bike just as much as you did on the bike. And it's the teams who had the best support staff behind them or riders who had the best support around them that the ones who were able to, to get that. And unfortunately, when you're a winner, Every manly dog wants to know you. Every manly's dog wants to be there with you. And oh, can I wash your bike for you? Can I carry your bag for you? Whatever else. But when you're fighting to get to the top, and then as in Cadell's situation, just to even get a start at the tour and be, you know, up there, that's tough. You know, the other factor that added that element of chaos in that 2008 tour, uh, Cadell, was Surge, because your press officer had no idea. So we're asking, oh, you know, can we get an interview with Cadell? He's like, yeah, I don't know, eh? You might be at the bus or, you know, you go to the hotel. And we're like, mate, just tell us where to be. Whereas yeah. George, he would go, be here this time. You get one question. I'll do it in order, SBS first and forth. So you just know what's going on. Yeah. And then with the chaos surge, I remember him putting Scotty McGrory into the rose bushes. <laughs> He's running alongside trying to stick his mic in, Surge knocked him on his ass. It was just chaos. 
Lotto's, Lotto's idea, so they wanted to have him, and I actually didn't want to because, like I said, I just want to go and race my bike and perform well. Yeah. Now, I like Serge as a person. He's friendly and everything. But I think Lotto's true motive behind that was, well, maybe if we don't win the tour, let's make sure we get attract some attention. And so that mm. was just this thing. Uh, and it's just like, hang on, are we about winning the tour or, or attracting attention? I was about winning the tour. If you win the tour, you're going to get the publicity and everything you need, and that's not going to be a problem. But they did all these things against my wishes. Of course, I get the blame afterwards. Oh, you wanted this, you want that. And the first thing I sat down with my first meet I had with Jim Ockwicks. Yeah, but why do you want a bodyguard? Why do you want this? Why do you want that? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want any of that. All I want to right. do is race my bike and do the best I can for my team. He's like, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I mm. think we can help you out then. I'm like, oh, that's all I want. <laughs> And that was when it happened. Funnily enough, this was the day, the Saturday before the Sunday in Mendrisio, 2009. Johnny? Just going to say that it's great listening to the you know what you're saying, Scotty, about, uh, you know, he, he didn't have the right team. But even uh, in 2011 when you won the tour and the team was all for you and they did a really good job, when it came down to it, the two days you went, you won the tour, which is the Gillibier and then uh, up to S. You had to do it on your own anyway. It was you, mm, Cadet, that won that tour. That was two amazing days, and there was no team around to help you then. But team, Thanks. His team is in the race, though, John, and there's a team support from the management. And it's every essence, and it's true to people booking your tickets and everything the whole year. So you run up to the to the tour, to that point, your training camps, having someone who is booking your travel, uh, taking that stress away. And you have to think of it, and that's why I say same for the classics. And it doesn't matter what you're doing, every amount of energy that you're losing through stress or worry or, or trying to fix things outside of riding your bike is lost. Yeah. And when you're coming down to like those days you just mentioned about them being on the Galibier and, and the Alpe d'Huez, Cadell still had that energy in the tank, the fuel in the tank to do it on his own because he'd been brought to there by his team. Whereas when he was with Lotto, like he just mentioned, he had to do all his press stuff. He had no press officer. He was already empty before he got there. And then yeah. throw in a crash. So it, yeah. it's it's all accumulated. To, to the, you know? find myself to the bottom of the climbs to the front as well. Whereas yeah. uh, the big thing, we, we didn't have guys in the mountains, but we were really good on the flat at BMC. So it's like when we were in the cobbles or getting to the bottom of the climb or in the crosswinds or in the finishes, George was always there taking me through. And it was just it's good, like oh, relatively, it was just a breeze. It was like oh, it wasn't being on holiday, but mm. this is easy behind George, cross the finish line, avoid the crashes. Oh, here's George Luchinger. Okay, do we have any press things to do? 100, 50, 2. Okay, that, 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 that. All right, let's go now. Good job, boys. Let's go and have some dinner. No, oh, no, that's that easy, like actually, guys. Keep we'll your, your elbows up. out because you might get squashed. <laughs> Don't let anyone stand on your bike because they'll break it and they might not have bought a spare. And, oh, just a fight. <laughs> now, Cadell, on paper, you are Australia's greatest ever cyclist. You're a Tour de France winner. But I can't help but feel sorry for you for the amount of shit that you've had to put up with. And we, we had Simon Clark on this show only two weeks ago, if he... And he told us a story about the Worlds. Now, even your World Championship yeah. victory, you had to go on your own because, you know, the night before they wanted to ride for Gero. And, you know, this was a course that was your bread and butter and you're coming off the back of a super uh, tour of Spain that you should have won as well if it wasn't for that bloody neutral spare, asshole. But anyway, um, you know, <laughs> even, even your World so Championship... I've still got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that one and <laughs> maybe I went to other points in my career, but anyway. Well, it's um, time to just rinse all that, mate. This is therapy. So, um, uh, But 
even even your worlds, mate. Like you, you look back at that, and there's another example of where you really had to sort of go it alone. Yeah. Mm. Oh, in the thing, and it's interesting. This touches a little bit on what uh, what Scott was saying about uh, Carlos as well, and the stress he was dealing with, and and uh, uh, it's amazing what goes on behind the scenes to get there and what amazed me of the really the really good the top riders there's ones who win and the ones who win the big races but there's the really really good ones the amount of stress that they go through contour 2009 tour de france before the he won on the verbier he's going back and getting his own water bottles because he didn't mm. trust any of lance's mm. buddies <laughs> to, mm. to bring him water bottles and things like this like he's, this is a guy and he's like the mental Crazy. toughness required to do this it's like and in people ask, oh, who do you think in your career and stuff? And of course, I had great coaches, Daniel Grandi, Aldo Sassi. I had some really great people to work with who, whether they gave me advice or to someone to speak to and reflect ideas on. But I sort of have to say sometimes, I'm glad I've backed myself because it's just incredible. And I say this is in anything we're trying to achieve in any facet in life, I think. It's amazing how many people tell you that you can't do it, that you shit, that you'll never do it. It's just mm. incredible. And and I'm sort of glad I believed in myself and and not them. Mm. Well, it definitely took some swingers for the worlds, but that was obviously a course that you knew that uh, you had good legs and, you know, you weren't going to take anything but a victory that day. Oh, I'd be, I'd been thinking about that race for a long time and the whole, I think I saw, well, 2008, going back to that tour. So I think, yeah, there's, it was after the time trial against Carlos, there was just a complete change in everyone in the team. I was with the Lotto team. There was just a complete change day and night. It was just like I went back to the hotel and it was like I was at a hotel on my own almost. No one looked me in the eye. No one had anything to say to me. No one had any. Con they were just disappointed, and it's like, and that that at that point for me was okay. Kettle's never going to win the tour. He's just like dead wood in our team now. That was basically the feeling that I got. And then when I was planning my racing and trying to get ready for the next year, I did all the work that required to do the tour. But I knew in November, I had a friend from school ask me, "Oh, the tour and that? How's it going?" And and um, and I, I looked at I looked at her and I said, "Uh." Not very good. And this was in November 2008 going towards the 2009 tour because I could just see with the time trial they had no inclination to do any work for the team time trial. So, okay, I'm going to concede two and a half minutes there already. Mm. Two and a half minutes to Contador. Here I am. I've just lost the tour twice by less than a minute. Uh, yeah. That's like anyway, anyway. But, but um, no, I just kept quietly working away at it and they wanted me to ride Paris-Nice. Um, the Arden Classics, apparently, they wanted me to write, basically write every hilly race on the calendar from February to to Lombardia, October, including during GC at the Tour. And when I say every hilly race, I mean Paris-Nice, um, Pace Basque, the Arden Classics, uh, the Giro Tour of Vuelta. <laughs> I was just like, are you crazy? Mm. No. <laughs> that's not even human but anyway anyway it's all, all things you learn so i just sort of sat there quietly and, and all the all i wanted to do was ride the vuelta actually because i wanted to get ready for the worlds because i see a chance at the tour was was a long 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 shot so um one of the topics we've been talking about quite a bit on the show has been the transition from being a professional rider to what do you do with the rest of your life how, how much of this cadell great ocean road race was about a bit of a legacy play as well you know you, you're obviously attached to the ballerine area and how did you two come together and how did it how did it come about i'll start with you scotty um, um well, no, 
Well, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. No, no, no. Start with you, Scott. Well, actually, the idea, the whole concept, came around off the back of Cadell winning uh, the tour in 2011. So, uh, he, his manager uh, and friend Jason Backer, um, Signature Sports. I give him a plug. Uh, which Jason now manages a lot of top Australian cyclists. Um, saw that uh, Brendan McClements, who was the CEO, uh, who's current CEO of Visa Victoria now, but was the CEO of Victoria Major Events Company at that time. So he saw him then and yeah, everybody's euphoric. He went over and he said to him, now's the time for a race in Australia for Cadell uh, in, in Victoria. He said, let's talk. And Brendan was also caught up. He just witnessed Cadell winning the Tour de France. So he was caught up on it. And that led to discussions. And that's where it actually all kicked off, as in Paris on the, uh, after the finish of, of Cadell winning the Tour, 2011. So that went along. There was a few different things happened around it, blah, blah, blah. But finally, it got legs. Uh, and uh, Victorian Major Events said yes. The board um, said yes, let's, let's get behind it and let's do this race and uh, recreate a legacy for Goodell Evans. Uh, and then it was searching for the location. Um, so that's sort of... Uh, Cadell was involved in those discussions afterwards and I came in just after that. So we actually didn't really talk about it till, till it was actually signed off and there was actually going to happen from a government level that there was going to be funding for this event. So that meant you, you, you picked a date, perfect date, straight after uh, Tour and Under, which just made sense. And you would think that, that would, they would have been excited for you to do that so the two uh, events could work together, share some costs. Exactly. So I don't think... It was uh, it worked that way right at the start? I don't think that was exactly the feeling coming from across the border at the start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, I, I give the analogy. I went for a haircut. I was at Tour Down Under, so I did some work for Subaru over at Tour Down Under while I was doing my race director's role. And uh, and I was over at the, in Adelaide, and I think it was on the Saturday morning. We had the Legends dinner that evening. And I went to get a haircut. And the guy's cut my hair, and he goes, oh, yeah, Tour Down Under, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, he said, I've been hearing about this race in Victoria. Bloody Victorians took the bloody Grand Prix office. Now they're going to try and take the tour down. And I'm sitting there going, Jesus, if you knew who you had, I'd go down here to years. Bloody hell. But it's, it's so entrenched there. So, yes, it was a quite a little bit of animosity uh, uh, towards uh, Victoria and, and particularly Melbourne. I mean, it happened so many years ago with the, with the Grand Prix, blah, blah, blah. And there's all these other things. But, yeah. And... It took a, a while, John. I think the breakthrough for me with them is that actually I ended up being in a bar, which you happen to do in, in Tour Down Under, and I think you've been know the bar I'm talking about. And there's quite a few journalists who hang out there, and I think, Dan, you might have even been here that night. Hilton Lobby? Yeah. Trial, yeah. What, what's the bar there in the corner? Whatever. Uh, so we ended up here. We had Bermuda all, Triangle. Uh, <laughs> so, so we used to, had all the guys there, and they, they started um, having, having a chat to me about it. And I said, look, guys. There's no way that Victoria and Melbourne and anyone else is looking at doing anything similar or even you know, a little bit like Tour Down Under. Tour Down Under works because of the demographics, the, the, the position that it has in, in Australia, the position it has in Adelaide. Just the whole model works here. You cannot even replicate that in Australia or any, anywhere else in Australia, let alone in the world. It just would sure. not work. I think you'd even yeah. struggle in California to do this. Um, so it only works here. But we don't want to do this. Don't you get that? That's not what we're about. We're creating another legacy. So it's something completely different, uh, what we want to do. But we can work perfectly well together alongside one another. 
So let's just start concentrating on doing the bigger thing about cycling, creating a great few weeks of cycling in Australia during the summer for all people to come to see, all teams and, and, and all spectators and all of Australians, and just enjoy it. Let's just focus on that, guys, uh, about the sport instead of trying to create any uh, um, dogfights or anything else. So pretty much we, we, things started getting better from then onwards because the media was sort of sensationalising a little bit and a few chats, more chats with uh, Hitav and a few other people, and I think they sort of realised that, you know, Victoria, what they wanted to do was just about one-day racing and uh, developing the classics that we have, both the men's and the women's. Yeah, um, great well. Well, yeah. uh, I, that's totally. If I can, uh, totally agree with you on that, Scott. Um, we're on the same team, so of course, of course, I'm going to. But no, that's it's so true. And the thing with um, my, my idea and and going through to the race and how it was developed, my my thing, my 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 biggest, I think, important. Correct me if I, if if I'm wrong, Scott. Was one was the timing, the the place in the calendar that the race had to take, and the format of the race with the not so much the format. The laps, the distance, and so on—that's that's Scott's uh, area of expertise. Um, but more the um, having the women's race, having a public ride, and involving the community. Because I was I was looking at, um, you know, of course, we've got the elite level cycling and the world tour, but it's cycling's bigger than just just the world tour. I want it to be beyond just just the world tour. That was my my biggest thing there. And funnily enough, speaking about the discussions and the, I totally agree. Where Tour Down Under is. A fantastic race and Tour Down Under only works in Adelaide. That's even mm. if we Melbourne wanted to steal it and and going like using the California reference. I think California tried to do something they did and they ran out of money because mm. you know how much it cost to close down the Golden Gate Bridge. I rode mm. across in the Tour Down uh, Tour of California across the Golden uh, Gate Bridge and so it was incredible. <laughs> Melbourne would be a little bit like that to have that happen. It's just cycling's just not a not a not a not a, a sport that. Um, I think can command that right now, maybe in 20 years' time or something, or for the World Championships in 2010 or something, that that might be the case. But um, it, it's not going to work, and you could have it out in the Yarra Valley. But anyway, it's not going to work. But we don't want it. That's great. Tour Down Under is great for that. We one-day race. It's mm. perfect for Melbourne and what we want, and, and it just fits in fits in perfectly with the, the demographics and the location and, and everything. And um, I had the same discussion about we're not trying to steal the race. We want a race that fits in. And I was trying to think in the bigger picture of the World Tour teams, the travel that they have to do, preparing for the rest mm. of their season and so on. And I had this discussion with um, – I was doing a, a, an event, a different event out at a, a wind power station with Jay Weatherall, actually, and I had this same discussion with him. Was, we're not trying to – we want to work with you to, to make – make your, your tour down under is better our race is better let's have the international cycling season start in australia and that was always my goal so. it seems like it's a common issue among cycling as a whole you know you're constantly battling for turf you know and that's why they're sort of struggling with events and teams getting revenue streams and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. do you think hopefully on the back of COVID, that um is an opportunity to almost bring the the sport together a little bit more because it's like well you need to rearrange your perspectives a bit here guys because we keep fighting you know for your own turf the sustainability a lot of these events particularly what you're seeing in in Europe Scotty I mean it, mm. isn't that the key with all this moving forward for the for the benefit of the sport you are right Dan I think we've seen here in Europe as well um, you know definitely. Uh, we had to have a lot of plan Bs with the races that we had here. I mean, just to, the reshuffle of uh, more or less 
our biggest races, Kent Wevergem and Tour of Flanders, got cancelled a week and two weeks prior to the races. We then quickly had to go into uh, uh, a mode of, of reassessing where can we run it, the races, in at the end of the year, what dates could work, all the stakeholders that are involved in it, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then have those emergency meetings with all the other big stakeholders of organisers and, and the UCI to get a calendar up and running. I, I think the UCI on that part have, have done an amazing job, but they need uh, really a big pat on the back uh, to be able to get 2020 up and running. And David Lepartien, uh, his willingness to work with everybody and bringing everybody together was, was huge. So, yes, um, it's a big job, and I think that actually has strength in cycling here in, uh, on a world level uh, and, and to, to, uh, for sure on a European level. But I also feel that you are right on Australian level, conversations and dialogue has probably opened up a little bit more, and I think that that sense of feeling that we need to work together uh, has definitely been highlighted uh, and people starting to really realise how important it is for us to, to work as a country uh, for representing cycling, not just on our own individual states and areas and even organisers. So um, I would love to have uh, a bigger uh, talk around the table with all the organisers and stakeholders. And I think Damien DeBowen, uh, to his credit, uh, tried to initiate that a few years ago in creating uh, Australia's Summer of Cycling, which now stands with Jess Victoria as the Summer of Cycling. Um, few people didn't see that as, a, as an opportunity, uh, which I think that... You know, Damien did see the bigger picture. I mean, this is someone who's done the A-League before and brought the made the A-League successful. Um, I think that, yeah, that's where we need to get to, uh, Dan, is, is, you know, having one summer of cycling in Australia and that will ensure success and, uh, and something that everybody wants to be part of, the riders, the teams and the public. Iffy? Yeah, the biggest challenge is the actual major events corporations in each state. They're traditionally always yeah. trying to outdo the other, you know, and that that's never going to really change. That, that's what it's about. You know, the Sydney-Melbourne thing will always be there. You know, they're trying to make a, a horse race bigger than the Melbourne Cup up there. It's never going to happen. But uh, so that, that's that. the biggest challenge is the, the states. It's a really uh, a testament to the work you guys have done, uh, uh, Scotty, to, that, that, uh, with South Australia, that remembering that uh, the Tour Down Under is their biggest event. I mean, that is their Melbourne Cup, you know. So... Uh, and they were really concerned about the crowds from Victoria not coming over mm -hmm. to Adelaide. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll stay and watch that race. They'll see the, and it hasn't turned out that way. You know, people still oh. love to go to Adelaide and watch it. So yeah, it's been a f uh, fantastic over the last three years, especially the last two years, uh, how you've worked with them to to uh, to, to um, settle it all down. And it makes sense. I mean, it's sharing huge dollars. The riders come out. It halves the cost in a lot of areas. Yep. You are right, though. If you, I've been to every year that we've run the event, the Cadell Evans Grocery Road Race, I've been in Adelaide too as well for the Tour Down Under. I love it there. I, I, I raced the inaugural um, Tour Down Under as a professional. I competed in I don't know how many, including with Mick Rogers the year he won as his teammate, with Cadell uh, as his teammate, um, you know, and then with my different teams, and then I've been the sports director there with with Stewie and 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 the, and the boys, uh, and then you know in in my role as race director now. So I've enjoyed many uh, years of the Tour Down Under, and uh, I could say 
probably not close friends, but I'm definitely a friend of, of Mike Turtle. I, I see him as a friend. Stewie and I have got a lot of history together. Uh, and everybody who works at uh, at uh, Tour Down Under within South Australian government and uh, in Hitaf uh, is a lovely person of her whole crew. Um, it's just like you say, it's the it's the states and the competition there, and, and yes, Tour Down Under is the biggest sporting event in South Australia, I'd, I'd say. Um, and Cadell Evans Grosh and Road Race and Cycling, because of uh, Melbourne is you know the events capital of the world, has been in the top three for many years. They have many great events. So, uh, yeah, we've got quite a bit of competition within our own state, let alone anywhere else in Australia uh, as, as far as running a big race. Well, it's been a fascinating chat, guys. I mean, we could talk for two and a half hours, particularly if we go back to the old Tour de France days and the battles with bloody security guards and the likes. But before we let you go, it's obviously been a crazy year, but the racing's been pretty sensational. I'll start with you, Kiddo. What's been the, the standout ride or moment for you from 2020? Um, oh, there's been a couple, hasn't there? It's been, um, yeah, oh, that's put me on the spot here. There's been so many good ones. I have to say, of course, we all appreciated how much more we miss cycling. And like Scott says now, watching cyclocross, I packed the family up, kids and all, got in the van, drove down to Tuscany, and we went and rode the uh, Strada Bianca before the pros came through. Watch that. Um, first time I've been a bi- uh, spectator of bike, bike race for a, a while. Um, I think... I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, Primoz Roglic and watching him in the tour was, um, was um, you know, I, I liked him. I expected him to win, but seeing, seeing him, Pogacar just come out, I'm just like, I'm still today just trying to believe that incredible ride. Um, that was probably one of the most amazing, um, what, for me, probably the standout moment. I didn't enjoy it because it was Primoz getting beaten, the guy who I went to see win the tour, but... Um, but that was probably what the biggest standout moment for me of the, of the 20, 2020 racing year. You, you must have been impressed with his sportsmanship, Primoz. Like he, he seems like a really genuine guy, particularly those scenes when he was congratulating Pogachar. You know, you, you've been there. You know what it's like, that feeling when you when you lose the, the tour oh, on a penultimate day. It, it must morning. be gut-wrenching. Yeah. Gut-wrenching, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a much better, much better description. Gut-wrenching, but um, I, I is um, like we said, of a, a person of great character. I have a, a great deal of respect for him for that. Not just the rider is, but the person is as well. But uh, he took it. He'll have he'll have another chance again. And um, but anyway, I'll, Scott, I'd, I'm interested to hear your hear your opinion as well. Um. When, when COVID first hit the pandemic uh, at the beginning of the year and uh, I was talking to a couple of the journalists because uh, the Flanders Classic is being cancelled and all the races and stuff, and they said to me, oh, what do you see now happening with it? And I said, well, my thought was on it that it's an opportunity for the younger riders to really step up. Um, and, Cadell, you can vouch for this. The older riders are so fixed in doing it a certain way in approaching the season so the season approach so if you're getting ready for the classics it starts in october november if you're getting ready for the tour it starts straight after you break you're already thinking about from the moment the announcement of the tour courses is done in uh, november in paris that's when you go into that mode uh fully so is an opportunity that the the uh, chaos within the cycling and the program give opportunity to younger riders because younger riders are able to peak a lot quicker uh, and, and, and hold form over normally over a shorter period of time, although uh, Wout van Aert has totally uh, killed that theory. Um, but, yeah, so what you've predominantly seen is all younger generation, uh, just totally new generation. 
Uh, Rolik is is probably one of the older ones who is able to still win. Um, so that's the biggest thing, as I said, and he just hats off to all of those guys. All these young kids just come in there, and you know what they've done? They're just throwing the bloody the power meters away. They've just raced with heart and soul and guts, and that's what was been the best. So to all these young kids, they're all stars and they're legends in the making. And that's, um, yeah. I think the Giro is the perfect example of that between Jai yeah. and that was. Yeah. Um, if he would, is one of the highlights for you, Alan Piper and his connection with the Primos ride and, and how open he was, particularly on the, the morning of the final day of the tour? Well, well like I say, the the, uh, the podcast we did with uh, uh, with Alan uh, virtually, you know, straight after the time trial, uh, it was um, – the highlight for me in that the raw emotion and he he he, he, he fessed up about all of his stuff and his battles with cancer and and his the way he went through the year that was a highlight for me but um we had him on again just last week uh and he he told us a bit more about that and that was just as interesting he told us about his early days and um the, the family challenges he had and uh, and how that made him an angry young man and how that got him to stay in Belgium as a 17-year-old with no money. <laughs> how he, he spat on one rider at the finish of a junior race because he'd taken all the preems and he didn't have any money to buy bloody dinner. You know, <laughs> that was pretty amazing. But but the actual highlight for me road race was I think it might have been the, the Tour of Flanders, the, the Ronda. I just thought, you know, there were three favourites for the race. And I don't know if this has ever happened before. And those three favourites ended up being out front and going to race it out, except for uh, our mate (laughs) touching touching down. And then, you know, those two guys, uh, only a couple of centimetres between them at the finish, Van der Poel and and Van Aert. Wow, what a a pair. So for me, that was probably the highlight race. For me, I was trying to be unbiased, but yeah, to have these two guys have been racing neck to neck together since our juniors and still see this this uh happening today and we've you know winter and summer all, all year long that's just amazing all right well i think that's uh winding the clock down boys it's been a fascinating I do, chat i do have one quick question for, for you scotty because yeah. I was going to actually talk a little bit about your uh, earlier career, but we, we, we didn't get time for that because you had a, a great career. But I saw a wonderful podcast with a mate of mine uh, um, um, did with you only uh, a month or so ago, uh, Ed Hood. On, oh, uh, Ed, got, yeah, yeah. got Pez, Pez, the good, good bloke yeah. for, for a Scotsman. Um, but uh, and in that, I didn't realise it because you, I remember at the time, 98, uh, Amstel Gold, uh, you got – Knocked over by one of the team uh, managers who was your ex team team boss, Case Preem. I remember yeah. racing against Case. He was a buddy. Uh, yeah, we won't go into that. But um, but the fact that that court case is still going on. That's two thousand. Mm. That was nineteen ninety eight. It's now two thousand. We're about to be two thousand one. Mm. When's it going to finish? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully this year, mate. <laughs> this year, 2020? No. No, no, 21. Yeah, 21. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's, there's a bigger picture, bigger story to that, uh, though, too, mate. So some things here. But, yeah, uh, Belgian law and um, a court is, is quite different. I mean, if it had probably happened in Australia or the US, um, uh, it would have been done and dusted within six months, you know, particularly within it's all captured on video and particularly his denial of everything. So, anyway... It um yeah it's still going on but 
What a, what a way to finish the chat off with a real curly question about a 20-year legal battle. Great stuff, John. Great stuff, mate. But as, as I said, I'm going to be now. Uh, hey, thanks, heaps for being on the show, guys. No, as I said, Cadell, yeah, Australia's greatest cyclist, Cadell. Scotty, you're Australia's greatest uh, race director. And uh, Cadell, I want to give you the final word to everyone watching to wrap 2020, and we're going to roll the credits as soon as you've finished. 2020, it's been a tough year for everyone, and um, I think we just got to take the take if we can find any positives from it, take those positives, learn from them, and look forward to 2021 bigger, better, stay healthy, stay well. See you next year. This is the winning.